Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California for the latest in our series of Lavender Talks, co-presented by San Francisco Pride. Today's program is made possible by the generous support of Gilead Pride Alliance and Comcast. We also thank San Francisco Pride's legacy sponsors. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial. We hope you are staying safe and well wherever you are, and we look forward to seeing you in person again when the world returns to something like normal back here at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 200 online programs the club has produced just in the past five months. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video of our past programs and how you can help support our program production at commonwealthclub.org. Now I'd like to introduce Michelle Miao. She's a former president of San Francisco Pride and the longtime producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club and San Francisco Pride for putting this program together, and thank you all for joining us. And like John said, if you're joining us live, we want you engaged in the conversation, so send us questions or comments, and we'll get them to our incredible panelists. And now, I'm super excited to introduce you to our great panelists here today. We have Africa America, who's a social justice activist and San Francisco's divalicious drag performer. We have Eric Panyavong, who's the hospitality events manager and a Bay Area native. Andrea Shorter, who's commissioner of the Commission on the Status of Women, also co-founder and Castro for All, Bayard Rustin LGBT Coalition, a political strategist and a columnist for SF Bay Times. And finally, last but not least, Steven Torres, who's the interim secretary for the Castro LGBTQ Cultural District, also a freelance writer and a trusty bartender at Twin Peaks Tavern. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the program. So let's begin. Hello, hello. I feel like we can put up jazz hands since it's a special pride program. <laughs> um, let's begin with the history of the Castro and share what we know about you know, how the Castro formed. It, it seemed to have formed its gay identity in the late 60s during the Summer of Love as working class families left the Castro for the suburbs, the gays and lesbians, or maybe primarily from what I know, the gays moved into the Castro because of affordable housing. And get this from some of my reading, and I don't know if it's true, but I think it is, you could get a piece of property back then for twenty to forty thousand dollars. That's not the case nowadays. Yeah, I know. But you know, it, the Castro then became a social ground for the LGBTQ community, uh, a community uh, with political activism, and, and it meant so much more. And would grow to be a, a, a safe haven, a sanctuary for LGBTQ people around the world. So what's your take on the history of the Castro and what it means to the LGBTQ community? Let's start with Andrea. Well, first of all, thank you, Michelle, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for bringing us all together today. Hey, you know what? When you start talking about the Castro, it's always hard to determine where to start, and there is no end, right? But yes, you're right. That is pretty much a really good summation of the history of the Castro, what became known as the Castro. Yes, as people were moving out of the uh, what we now refer to as the Castro, the Castro used to be a predominantly sort of Irish um, community, you know, families, single home families, uh, etc. As people were doing really, to some degree, a little bit of white flight out of the city and into the suburbs or even to other parts 
of, uh, of San Francisco, maybe out into the sunset, etc. Then as these guys that a number of them that were uh, former military, right? They had just been relieved from the from the Navy. Naval services started to establish this community, which we now refer to as the Castro. And if you know a little bit of some of the, the grander icons of, of LGBTQ liberation movement, certainly Harvey Milk, I think, comes to mind when people think of the Castro. And so I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about you know, uh, dabble into some of his history, but um, that's a good summation. But certainly over the years, it has become or struggled to become a more diverse um, community. So we can see the community, we can see Castro as really an iconic place, right? It's sort of ground zero of LGBTQ movement, but it's a neighborhood. It's a commercial strip. It's a, um, it's a community, it's um, a number of things to, it's different things to different people. But yes, that's a good summation of its history. Stephen, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts and about the, the Castro history. I mean, you work for the iconic Twin Peaks Tavern, and the bar itself is history. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it sound, that's a pretty good summation, I would say. Uh, Something I would add is that you know, it was an Irish, uh, predominantly Irish Scandinavian neighborhood, very heavily Catholic, so much so that it, the church, Most Holy Redeemer, sometimes was shorthand for that neighborhood. And there was a lot of uh, SFPD that lived there. So this all was definitely ripe for early friction between people moving in and people that were already there or on their way out. And Twin Peaks opened in 1972. So right as this was happening, it was there was only a couple of other bars open at the time. Most of the other bars in the neighborhood were Irish bars. I think it's on KQED. There's a short film that a queer Ch- uh, Chicano made um, that has a, a clip from one of the owners, the original owners, uh, Mary Ellen, I believe. And uh, she's just talking about like, you know, everyone's welcome, you know, like <laughs> just trying to make it like as easy as possible for the existing neighbors to accept them being there. So, yeah, it, a lot of the uh, protocol in that bar in the in the in the early days was because uh, they they really wanted to try and make it last, and so it was a no touch bar. Like you you couldn't kiss, uh, you couldn't hold hands. Um, a lot of the clientele that they tried to attract was um, professional, you know, working professionals. They want the uh, they wanted to. The women, two women that opened the bar had um, had been in the business for a long time, and so they wanted to really dispense with the dark hidden bar that they that the the gay bar had become synonymous with, and also all those bars on that street at the time had become synonymous with that bar. Before they bought it, the windows were completely blacked out, and that was even when it was an Irish bar because the whole connotation was that it was a place that you didn't go into. Right, right. Oh, talking about, or speaking of not being able to touch, and I think, you know, that policy evolves and becomes even a racist act, and we'll get into it um, very shortly here, but Africa would love to also hear from you, your, your, you know, recollection or knowledge of Castro history. Well, I'm a native San Franciscan, so I was born, raised here, and as a little boy, as a little gay boy, well, I didn't know I was gay at that time, 
wait a minute, how did I not know? <laughs> I mean, hello, look at all this. But um, I used to sing, I used to actually sing in the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, I mean, San Francisco Boys Chorus when I was a child. And we used to uh, rehearse at Calvary Presbyterian. So I would take the K or the L or the M and get off at Castor Street and stand on the corner in front of uh, Double Rainbow Ice Cream and um, in front of Twin Peaks and be terrified and tantalized at the same time, watching the men go up and down the street in their little white t-shirts and their very tight uh, 501 jeans. And I was like, oh my God, scandal, but ooh, scandal. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to take the 24 to Visadero to Calvi Prez and I would just, I remember the Castro being in the beginning, in the beginning, like like you guys all said, it was an Irish Catholic neighborhood, very 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 Irish Catholic. Um, you'd see it, you'd see the odd Asian or the odd black person in the in the neighborhood, but for the most part, mostly Irish Catholic. And then as the gays moved in, and and mostly white gays moved in to the Castro, because if if you were black and gay, you were still living like in the hate or maybe in the Western edition, and you still were very closeted because you were dealing with other things like church and things like that. So the white gays moved into the Castro, and, you know, it like I said, tantalizing and terrifying at the same time. And, um, yeah, that's what I remember as a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Eric, you're also a San Francisco Bay Area native. What do you know yeah. or remember of Castro history? Yeah, so uh, growing up, my, my mother used to always hang out in the Castro with her queer friends. So when I, my senior year in high school, uh, she snuck me into a bar with her. And during college, I would hang out in the Castro all the time. I went to school at Berkeley, but I, I came out to the Castro. I remember it being much more diverse than it is now. Over the last couple of years, uh, I've, I was managing fitness stuff right there on Knowing Market for... Um, three, four years, and I lived right behind there. So I've seen the neighborhood change a lot. And uh, I I find it because it's become with the social media with, you know, um, it's become more of a cultural landmark, whereas back then it was a neighborhood, more of just a neighborhood where people kind of congregated, hung out and built community. Now, I think there's more uh, of a national and international spotlight on it from, you know, the movie Milk and other things that have put uh, Castro on the map. Thank you so much for sharing, everyone. So this next question is is for all of you or, or for anyone who wants to jump in and begin this conversation, and we'll touch on the Castro's racist history. I want to bring up Rodney Barnett, who founded the Compton's Black Panther chapter and who op- opened, I, I think, um, or at least one of the first people to have opened the first Black-owned gay bar in San Francisco, uh, the Eagle Creek. So not sure if any of you uh, know of the Eagle Creek, but you know, when Rodney moved to San Francisco in 1969, he was surprised and he described the environment as... Um, he was he was surprised to find that racism in the gay scene was much more pronounced than in the city overall. And he talks about, you know, the, the rendezvous used to cut music when black people started to dance, citing a rule against bodily contact. 
um, the stud removed uh, black music from the jukebox, uh, the mine shaft, like other gay bars, uh, black people are often asked for various different forms of ID. And uh, I know we know that we can talk about, you know, the history of this practice of other bars that stuck around, such as, you know, the Badlands. And but here's his quote. The bigger the community got, the worse the discrimination was. I started avoiding even driving through the Castro. So let's open that up, leaving you with that quote and uh, having an open discussion about this. And so I'll toss it to the panelists. Who wants to jump in first? I'll go. <laughs> that I'm like, okay, here we go. Let's let's go. So he's right. I mean, I, I I'm a, I'm a person of a certain age, so I'm going to say timeless. But I remember in the <laughs> '80s when um, the Pendulum was our black bar in the Castro, and the Pendulum was the bomb because everybody knew that. You went to Daddy's because that was the leather bar in the Castro. You went to um, you went to Twin Peaks because that's where the older gays go. You went to Mike's Night Gallery across the street, which no longer exists, because that's where the naughty people went. And you went to the Pendulum because that's where the black people were, and because that's the only place that the black people felt comfortable and safe. And even and and to talk about the racism, we also need to talk about the intersectionality and the sexism. I mean, women would come to the Castro and be like, what are you doing here? And these are, these are the lesbians. We're not even talking about the straight women. These are the lesbians like, what are you doing here? You have your club over on the, le- go to the Lexington club. You know, so drag performers, drag wasn't big in the Castro at that time. People think, oh, Castro drag, like, mm, no. Drag was not in the Castro. Drag was either on Polk or South of Market. Drag was not the Castro. Drag now, it has gotten into the Castro, but at that time, nope. And Pendulum, so we didn't have drag. We didn't have people of color. We had cisgender white men, old and young, except at the Pendulum. Yeah, I used to hang out when I first came out or, or started going to the Castro. The bar of choice was the Pendulum because... The music was amazing. People went there to dance. I saw people who looked like me. And I I think over the years, I've seen the color of the Castro change. It's becoming more predominantly white and Asian. And and at bars, at Badlands, at other bars now, I see, you know, acts of microaggressions. And I often see, like, other gay Asians align themselves with, white, you know, gay men. Uh, I think as the city's black and brown population shrinks, I think it's really important for everyone to speak up and to talk about it in our space. And and that's something that I think people don't want to admit to in the Castro. And I think it's very real. Yeah, it's definitely real. It's been a part of the history. And I think that, again, it goes back to some degree in terms of what people expect of the Castro, right? And as Africa was saying, you know, there has been a time and it's not gone away entirely where the idea of the Castro is really a gay white man's playground. We just have to be very honest and direct about that. That is sort of an idealized version of the Castro. So everyone else then, therefore, is either background or some ancillary characters or therefore um, questionable uh, and suspect reason. 
Um, they're not in, involved in um, the, main, the majority of the, the decisions about what the, what the Castro means and who is welcome and who is not welcome. And so it's been certainly a, a struggle for the, the community. At one point, uh, several years ago, I was on another panel with the museum, and the, the, the discussion was, do we even need the Castro anymore? As LGBT issues in our lives become um, more integrated and more mainstream, we're not there yet. Uh, so I just want to be really clear on the panel. I was the one. We ain't there yet. <laughs> uh, even, you know, back then, and we can, we, you know, certainly there have been some um some changes since then, but nonetheless, that is really how the Castro is 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 understood. That is really a utopic, uh, a playground, primarily for the for the fantasy and idea of gay white men. And if you don't fit a particular mode, if you go back and even looking um, back to some of the things that Eric was saying, you know, um, you know, in Africa was saying like going there and seeing these guys in the white t-shirts and the, the, uh, the you know, the very tight 501c3, that has been the I- iconic sort of, um, uniform, so to speak of, of everyone, um, looking a particular way. And if you didn't fit that mode, then you were definitely out of place and perhaps by some not welcome. One of the things that we were engaged in, or I was engaged in, if you all recall, in the mid, around 2004 into 2005, um, was the what became known as the Is Bad Lands Bad campaign. And um, part of what John Newsom, Lisa Williams, um, Lawrence Shine, um, whole host Julie, the late, great Julius Terman, who went on to serve on the police commission, um, working with uh, SCIU and others, we boycotted um, Badlands because of the kinds of practices in terms of, you know, again, these weren't new practices. They weren't new, right? The three pieces of ID or looking a certain way. And it was basically, it was very clear and very evident that um, it was to, um, base, it, was, it was segregation, that black folks, black men, Latin folks, we're not welcome if you didn't fit a particular type of 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 um, of mode or image, or basically just weren't welcome at all. So we challenged that, and it became not only a local movement, um, but it became uh, a movement that received international attention. So people knew that if you were coming to the Castro, um, that this boycott was going on, and we were defining what it was about. Are we or are we not going to be an inclusive? and welcoming community. And so there's a lot of history there. You can go to ancastroforall.org. You can see the history um, and also some of the recommendations. We actually had to uh, involve the Human Rights Commission for San Francisco, and it did render that, yes, there was clear discrimination going on uh, at the bar and had recommendations. And I think that still to this day, there have been efforts to implement those recommendations, but certainly there's still some challenges in terms of how to really create um, and build and support and sustain an inclusive community. Stephen, anything to add? Yeah, I just, I, I just to build on what everyone else said, I, I think that, yeah, it was a very exclusive only to uh, assist white men and, and it was a built upon the, the clone, you know, which I think, you know, in its, it's ironic. It was a, it was a way of turning heteronormative culture on its head and, and really, you know, you know, turn, making that the community's own, but 
problem with that is that even in heteronormative culture, there was no black and brown faces, you know, so there, so there was no room for that. So unless you fit into a fetishized version of what a black and brown per- person is, there was no room for that either. That was the first thing I noticed. I came from Southern California and I was aghast actually. I mean, and this is saying a lot coming from Southern California, how racist the Castro was. And it was very uh, insidious because it wasn't outwardly racist necessarily, but it was just, if you, it was either backbiting comments. I I didn't go to the pendulum for the longest time because they were like, people told me it was like this sleazy bar, which I didn't realize was shorthand for it's a black bar, (laughs) you know? And so it took me a long time to go to a place that was ended up being one of my favorite places, you know? And then, and and then it it took you, part of the reason why it took such a long time was because when I did find out it was a black bar, it was from white guys that were chasing black and brown guys. So I was like, oh, is this like a fetish pickup bar? Because I don't want to go to that either, you know? So, <laughs> that, so like that was, it was just, it's so layered, you know? And I, and that was one of the first things I encountered was like, where are you from? And I was like, LA. And they're like, no, where are you really from? I'm like, oh. LA. They're like, no, where are your parents from? LA, you know? So it's just like, it's very... It's, yeah. <laughs> this is a question, question for go ahead sorry Africa well no to piggyback on that what he was saying it's like it's hysterical when you say where are you from it's like <laughs> I'm from I'm from the planet earth is where I'm from <laughs> and I'm from San Francisco it's like where are your people from and then it's it uh I can't tell you growing up here in the city and um because the thing about the city I love the city. I mean, I, I'm a native San Franciscan, so I have a I have a special little spot, spot here. I went to high school here in the city. I went to Washington High School. Go Eagles! And at my school, we were 60% Asian, 22% Black, and everything else was the other. Isn't that nice that white folks at that moment were the other? So I went to a school where white folks were the other. Even though I wasn't the majority, I wasn't truly the final minority. So, but you get to get into the the gifted program classes. And I faced that racism too. And what Eric said about uh, Asians aligning with white folks and getting into white, white alignment, um, I transferred out. I was going to Washington. That was out of district for me. I was supposed to go to Lincoln. I was like, no, thank you. I'm going to go to Wash. Because at that time, Wash was awesome. And so I went to Wash, and my Asian counselor said to me, well, I'm not sure if you're uh, suited for the gifted program here. I'm like, I'm in gifted programs at my junior high. Why wouldn't I be in gifted programs at my high school? Well, we'll see. Let's put you in regular classes first. And so the, the whole milieu of the, the prejudice and racism in San Francisco slash Castro, it's, it's, it's broad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're starting to get some questions in from our audience. Thank you so much. And keep sending them in and we'll get them to the panelists. So I'll take a quick break from my questions and ask uh, the panelists to whomever. I think this is open. If you'd like to take the question, go ahead and jump in. Uh, A question from the audience. I'd like to know what we can do as community members, as neighbors, and as visitors to transform the Castro into a neighborhood that lives up to its inclusive reputation. Um, I, I, I talked about this earlier about, you know, uh, when we see acts of microaggression or overt racism, we have to call it out. Our community um, have shrunk in its diversity. 
um, you know, San Francisco as a whole, but also to Castro specifically. So I think we, we can't make, have change without starting the conversation and addressing what's happening. And I think uh, oftentimes my white queer friends don't want to get involved because they think that racism is a race uh, uh, an issue that people of color have to deal with. No, it's an issue that white people have to deal with. And un unless we're able to bravely and honestly address how we've manifested in our queer communities, we're not going to get over it. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, it took me, and this is something, and you know, it's particular to, to working. I, I've worked as on and off in bars for 20 years. And um, especially, it's another, a whole nother kettle of fish, but the, the, uh, the queer bar industry is rife with um, abuse. But the, uh, one of the things about being, you know, so even as, as an employee in these situations, you're, you're, you're at will, you don't have any rights, there's no unions, nothing like this. But then as an employee of color, you really don't want to make waves. And so, like, it took me a long time to start speaking up for me because pretty much every bar that I have ever worked in, there was a problem, you know, um, at some point. And, and not necessarily from ownership, but between, or like patrons or fellow employees. And, um, and that was something I noticed about pe uh, people of color that were queer in the Castro is that, you know, they, sometimes they didn't want to say anything because they didn't, you know, they risked physical harm or being fired or something like that along those lines. And so we have to be, we have to stand up and call things for what they are, you know, and, and it's, it's extremely difficult, but, and the onus shouldn't, it, it, this responsibility should not rest squarely on the shoulders of people of color on black folks. And it's, it's, it should be on our white allies, you know, like mm -hmm. right, this is where we need them yeah. to step up. You know? Yeah. I, I want to add to this question. It was, you know, actually part of my question, but I think we should talk about, you know, equity uh, racial equity and inequity. And I mean, when we, we talk about the history, right? Uh, you know, the Black, Indigenous, people of color, transgender community were not residents uh, or, you know, official residents of the Castro. In fact, they occupied neighborhoods like Polk Street, you know, the Tenderloin. And so when we talk about how do we want the Castro to be much more inclusive, I, let, I don't know. I think we need to openly talk about the fact that, well, if the Castro were shutting the people out, in the first place, I mean, there's a whole lot of work that we need to do in order to keep, you know, people of color, uh, people a part of our movement, people who are leaders of our movement uh, in the spaces that we claim are LGBTQ inclusive. So what I mean by that is, you know, if people of color, Black, Indigenous, queers uh, can't be uh, owners of property in the Castro, can't be homeowners, can't be residents of the neighborhood. Um, I'm not sure like how inclusive we actually could be, you know, in the neighborhood like the Castro. So I, I'd love to, to hear from others who'd like to jump in on that point. Michelle, in the um, little over 30 years that I've, I've lived in San Francisco, came up from Southern California, live in San Francisco. I came to San Francisco and um, 91, end of 91. And at that time, 
Um, we were in a particular wave of HIV AIDS um, crises. And so I think that that's another element in terms of talking about the history of the Castro, the history of our movement, the history of, of our people that we, we don't want to over, overlook or underestimate in terms of its impact, in terms of how community was defined uh, and who was part of community. And I think that in that particular point in time, what I witnessed at the time, and, and certainly coming into the community a little, you know, uh, bright-eyed and, and bushy-tailed and had my own um, idealized uh, versions of what this gay community um, meant and what it, you know, was to be, um, that was a very difficult time. But what I did see um, moving forward over 30 years, the majority of my time in San Francisco, I have lived in the Castro. So I've been a long time resident of the Castro. I used to live at 16th between Market and Castro. So I live, I was, I, 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 saw, I saw you, Eric. I remember you were there. Uh, and, and so I was right around the corner from Twin Peaks. I was right like deep in the heart of the Castro. And so I've been a long time resident um, and member of the community. But I think that over the years, in terms of how we move forward, there have been lessons learned. There have been, again, it is, you know, it is, it is a story that is still unfolding. But the, there are many things about the, the history or the Castro that certainly we would hope that beyond the symbolism of diversity, if you look at the base of, for instance, the rainbow flag, I was part of the history of one of the first pairs of hands that hoisted the very first, you know, that massive rain rainbow flag in 97. And if you look at the base, you'll see that it also commemorates those of us that were appointed or elected at that point in time. And there's quite a diverse group of us of LGBT people. If you go along the sidewalks of Castro, we have the Rainbow Walk, um, and there's a diversity of, um, of, of, of folk throughout, not just San Francisco history, but through the whole pantheon of LGBTQ leaders and authors and literary figures and, 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 and so on that litter or place them on the sidewalk. So there are many elements about the Castro, even starting with the rainbow flag, that denote uh, a value about inclusion and diversity. But what is being expressed here is that the, the, the idea of a Castro is a diverse and inclusive place don't match up what often what people are experiencing. And I think that we have to, to read, always be open to how we define and claim space within the Castro. Okay. We're investors too. We may not necessarily always be as people of color, the homeowners or the shop owners or, um, and owners of restaurants, bars, etc. But our dollars and our presence is what makes real and what defines those values that are encased and enshrined, whether it's in the rainbow flag or these other monuments um, that are meant to denote, commemorate, and celebrate the idea of diversity. So to a large degree, we can't have it both ways. We either walk the talk, right, walk the walk, or we're not. And I think that the challenges moving ahead are, are even uh, a bit more stringent. Um, as the economy, we're, we're in, in, the, you know, in a pandemic. We don't know what the effects of this particular pandemic will be for, for you know, for some time to come. 
there's homelessness, there's a whole other, there's a host of other challenges to the community and what it means. So we have to define what does it take to move forward? How can we create a more inclusive environment um, and have it be real? And I'll leave, let's say, say this one last thing. I always go back to, even with Harvey Milk, now, Harvey Milk was, I think, if I add up all of our ages, it was even a little bit before my time, okay? I'll be the, 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 uh, the elder on, on, on the panel today. It was even a little bit um, beyond my time. But if you look at what Harvey Milk understood at that time, even politically, hey, look, we're not going to have political power. So the Castro was also a, a political power center, right? It is a political power center that is defined not so much just within a physical space, but the idea of this community being by and large LGBTQ representative. So a lot of San Francisco's uh, or the uh, LGBT community's political power resides within the idea of what the Castro is. It resides within the idea and the legacy of what Harvey Milk was about. And Harvey Milk understood at that time, hey, look, we're in a, uh, at that time it was uh, district elections, and then we moved to open elections, and then we're back to district elections. But he understood that in order for us to have real political capital, real influence, we can't do it on our own. It can't be just a group of, of corporate white guys that come here over the weekend for a playground, or even folks that are you know, invested as, as uh, homeowners and shopkeeps. We've got to reach out. We've got to build alliances. We've got to build coalition um, with other communities. That means black folks. That means Latin folks. That means the Asian folks. That means all other folks. And so I think that we've got to also really hold on to that. And it can, it has to mean something more than just sort of uh, building those coalitions for political power and representation, but it has to mean something in terms of how we see ourselves as 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 persons that are into intersections of life. None of us is just simply and singularly uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, etc. We are black folks. That's why we're on this panel. We're black folks. We're Asian folks. We're Latin folks. We're all kinds of folk, right? So. That really, by and large, is the majority experience of the LGBT community. It has to be. And so how we take that and claim that space in a definitive way, don't let anyone else say that, well, this is really, you're just here as visitors. No, I'm not here as a visitor. Um, the one thing that does speak um, that is the most intersectional is the color green, and that's money. And that our dollars are the dollars that are keeping um, businesses going, whether we're there as visitors, whether we are there as residents, whether we are there, um, you know, whatever our business is within, again, the idea of the Castro, whether it's on that commercial strip or whether it's in the greater community. So I think that how we, we really work to redefine and really just claim um, that space. It doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to mean that we're coming in as a, as a, a, a militia or a takeover. Um, we're just making sure that we're all living up to the values that the, uh, the idea of the Castro. 
Absolutely. Right. Africa, Africa, I think you have a lot to say. I mean, uh, you know, beautiful, right? You know, thank you so much, Andrea. That was so great. And, and to fabulous. piggyback off of that, mm-hmm. right? The, the redefining and claiming our space. I mean, just recently, um, there was an, or, an organized protest and solidarity, uh, you know, against police violence and the George Floyd killing. And so Africa, yeah. you know, take it away and, and talk about <laughs> the, how powerful, you know, that moment was for us to um, be in the country. It was amazing because that was uh, June the 4th, a Friday. We uh, got together, uh, a group of of people, Tommy Trujillo and Steve Freeman, two guys in the the Castro who promote different things. And Tommy's a uh, bartender at Bo. And they said, I want to do something. Tommy was like, I'm passionate. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. So they reached out to me and said, hey, Africa, will you help us? put together a panel, we help us get speakers and some entertainment. I said, we're gonna do more than just that. So we got we got all these wonderful drag performers, burlesque performers, but everybody everybody was black. And it was the best part because we said, because people all of a sudden forget that you can't we're tokenized so much um mm-hmm. when it comes to performers and people of color in the castro you got your one here's your one dancing girl here's your one comedy girl here's your one black girl here's your one latin girl the asian girl she gets every every fourth time because they don't even think about the asian girl she's like oh we might get her in whatever her name is may ling and it's like <laughs> rude and they say shit like that and you're like oops stuff like that pardon me commonwealth club mm. they say stuff like that and you're like really may ling yeah. okay wow okay Really? Um, so, and I mean, I'm bringing it to the real. So bring all those wonderful people together to one, show our pain, because that was like, we were all in pain. Black folks and everyone else finally around the world who said to themselves, y'all are not lying. We said, really? It took you, it took a filming of eight minutes and 47 seconds for this man to die in front of you to realize that we were not lying. Mm-hmm. We are not lying. So having that moment and bringing that bringing those artists together and telling our stories but also telling our truth and performing performing in our angst because we wanted we didn't want just to be negative we wanted to be like you know what this is not a moment it's a movement and it's not okay to be just non-racist you need to be anti-racist and actively anti-racist and you have to get on board and get on the boat and that's why we were so successful, I think, with that one. And then that parlayed into what I'm on now, which is the Bay Area Career Nightlife Coalition, which just had a wonderful um, <laughs> Zoom, uh, like much like we're doing right now, um, meeting out. And it was, we did a survey, we did some, some real data analysis. So, um, and it's the work that's being done. And we kind of piggyback off of what somebody in Chicago did. And by the way, join me on Sunday. I'm going to, pl- I'm sorry, join me on Saturday. I'm plugging for Oak Lash. We're talking about anti-racism in, in drag community. So join that and you'll hear more about that. Anyway, back to mine. Uh, <laughs> quick look. Uh, so we got together and we did the data analysis and we went down the line. And like Steven said earlier, it's hard being a person of color working in a bar and trying not to not to say the things you need to say to your bosses, let alone to the customers who say the nastiest microaggressions. I know, I know Steven's like, ooh, baby, you're so pretty for a Latin guy. I'm like, ooh, Eric, you're so cute for an Asian guy. It's like, or my favorite because Eric, Eric, Eric's um, ethnic background and the way you pronounce his name 
is because people, so they're like, what are you? What are you? What are you? Really? Yeah. More like, can you tell me a little bit about your ethnic background? I think your name is interesting and how do you pronounce it would be a better way to say instead of who are you or what are you? I mean, Michelle, I know you've many times ha had them say, so where are your parents from? And you, and you say, and I don't know where your parents are from, Michelle, but I know as, I mean, Asian people get this, Black people, we don't get where you're from. We get more like, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> Latin people and Asian people get where, where, where are you from or, or what are you? Yes. Black people, they know what we are. We're, we're former slaves. We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> So there, ooh, let someone else take it on because, honey, I could talk for the rest of the hour. <laughs> I, I I wanted to. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Eric. <laughs> okay. What are you? So I, I was working in hospitality during this pandemic. We've seen the hospitality industry as we know it now gone. Um, I think there's a real opportunity now. Right now, we see a lot of people who worked in restaurants now having pop-ups and finding ways to have a voice in the industry that we didn't have before because, uh, you know, the razor thin margins, how much it costs to open a bar or restaurant in the city have grown exponentially. Now we have a lot of people who work behind in the kitchen, behind the bar, now finding ways to be creative and to build community. I think after the pandemic's over, we have to ask ourselves, do we want these voices in the, in, in the industry? And we do because it enriches our lives. It brings America and the Castro is not made up by just politics, it's about our lived experiences. And going to a restaurant where we learn and get to experience someone's viewpoint, creativity and culture is what makes this city vibrant and what makes it San Francisco. So I think there is a real opportunity moving forward for, you know, city legislation to find, um, you know, commercial landlords for leaving storefronts open mm -hmm. um, or m more, more uh, co-ops or um, worker-owned businesses where people who work in the businesses become owners and have a say on, on how businesses run. Um, mm. I think there's opportunity in that after this. Yep. I, I wanted just quick, I, I think that's a, that was exactly almost what I was, I was gonna say was that the, this is a, a huge, uh, this pandemic for all of its horrible aspects, the one positive takeaway is that we have an opportunity to change the course, at least in the Castro, in our community, the course of the way things have been, you know? And I wanna recognize Africa, because the, the, the Bay Area uh, Queer Nightlife Coalition, that laid bare some of the worst. And that was only like four bars or something that they, and so right. I mean, there, there, there's more, I assure you. And this, and, and going off of what Andrea and Eric were saying is, you know, like this is where, in order for these places, and they should survive, you know, like, the, like some of these institutions, these are part of our history. But if they want to be part of our future, then they need to change. And this is and the and what the Bay Area uh, Queer Nightlife Coalition did is they started that conversation, and and we have the power now to change the direction of the way this has all been. Absolutely. Oh 
They I was hoping that we we end on this, you know, positive note. So I'm going to come back on, you know, where we go from here and COVID and how that impacts what our plan might be. But I want to go back to our audience questions because we got about 15 minutes left. And so uh, make uh, my promises good here that we'll get the questions to our panelists. There is a question from the audience. Um, how about Native Americans? What are uh, their experiences in the Castro? I would say the Native American experience is almost non-existent. I feel like the last time that San Francisco really talked about Native American experiences when we had uh, the occupation of Alcatraz back in the 70s. Hmm. And so if you are younger than knowing that history, then you don't really see the Native American. And of talking about, yes, Black folks, we were, in, we were stolen and enslaved. But Native Americans' land, culture, lives were were snuffed out. Genocide. So there, I would say Native Americans don't have a do not have a visibility as much as they can, and I think that it's turning. There are people who work at Strut. There are indigenous performers in both the voguing and queer nightlife scene who are really, really proud of their indigenous roots and they've been speaking out and, and coming forward more. I think we need to continuously amplify indigenous. We know that black and indigenous folks were in the, are in the hardest lane and that's followed right behind with Latin and Asian folks. So the lanes are hard. I mean, as you get towards, and colorism takes you towards the white adjacency We've got to work on getting our Indigenous brothers and sisters' voices heard more. Mm-hmm. I think that that's true. I think that the, it, you only have to look to, and this is something that you, we don't learn in school if you grew up in California, but our California's history with Indigenous people is, is one of the worst in the United States. And so the peripheral place in both history and are present that the indigenous peoples of California and all over the United States occupy is only going to be even less in queer culture, unfortunately. And every, I mean, I can actually count on my hands the amount of times I've met queer indigenous folks that are even like from California, you know, in, in the Castro. Here's a, here's a question. um, And uh, for, just looking at time, I want to be able to get through the questions. And so we'll take a comment or two from the panelists and move on to another question from the audience. Not to center white folks in this conversation, but I'm curious about what white allies are doing to fight racism so that uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color don't have to do all the work. You know, this is, we're in a very, I'll go back to what Stephen was saying. I absolutely agree. I think we all do. We're in in a particular place and time. It's a very pivotal moment in terms of how we're going to move forward, how we're going to move forward. I don't know that we'll get to a post-COVID-19 period anytime soon, but we're in a time of, of, of real uprising, and we have some real critical choices to make in terms of where we're going to go as a nation. How we're, are we going to move forward um, with uh, a, a, the idea of a democracy, or do we move forward uh, under the current regime that seems to be about um, authoritarian, autocratic, um, you know, that's my opinion. But I think that we can see what's happening on the streets and it's, it ain't good. But people are stepping up, right? People are stepping up and that are, are forming those coalitions and those alliances where everyone 
Uh, it should not be just on people of color. It should not just be on black folks to talk about uh, police mm -hmm. brutality every week when someone else is slain. Uh, it should not just be on uh, Latin folks and Asian folks to talk about the anti-immigrant, the anti-Asian um, hatred that is going on right now. We all have to be involved in the conversation. So I do think, I mean, I am excited and interested in what's going on in terms of um, how uh, white allies or white folks are looking at sort of how to be anti-racist. I don't think it's incumbent upon me to teach you how to be anti-racist or whatnot. You've had 400, 500 years to get it, get it together. Um, and, you know, but it doesn't mean that we're not allies and we don't work together. I appreciate anyone that wants to be a part of that part of the American experience moving forward, yes. Um, but there's, there's, I think, uh, developing um, language in terms of it's not just about being um not racist it's 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 about being anti-racist and what does that mean so um that's one thing i'll say about that and i just want to say one other thing i think that what's also very important even going back to the issue of how indigenous people are represented in the castro or not represented in the castro two-spirited people um i think that we that i would like to acknowledge i think that over time that there have been two-spirited people that have been leaders or have have had voice um, in the community, and um, they still are. Um, they're still there, but could there be more of that voice, more of that presence? Absolutely. But let's not forget one other thing. In California, if we are nearly a majority minority state, which seems to be the greatest fear of other areas in this country, and that's why we're in some the situation that we're in right now, it's the fear of the majority minority, right? And if we, as people of color here in California, are really the majority experience, that would mean that the majority experience, more than likely, of LGBTQ identified people are people of color. So the, the positioning of the conversation in terms of racism, whether it's in the Castro, it has to be uh, oriented towards the idea that really we do represent the majority experience and we're close to that. So we're not coming to the table without some agency and without some representation um, and we're not ancillary, we're not tertiary, we're, we should not be an afterthought. Um, our experiences um, should be considered um, more and more as, as a majority experience. So if the Castro or other communities um, are to survive as as century points for LGBT inclusion, movement and support, uh, we have to really orientate ourselves toward that recognition of fact. And also there's other, there's other places. It's not just the Castro. Look at what's happening in Oakland and what folks are doing there to really develop and build a stronger LGBT um, center point for the Bay Area and San Jose, mm -hmm. et cetera. But nonetheless, as a majority minority in the state of California alone, we have greater agency. Mm -hmm. Thank you. White or white allies should look at their lives on both the micro and the macro level. What are things that they do or things that they put up with on a micro level uh, that perpetuate systems, systemic racism? 
uh, that perpetuates prejudice against people of color. And then on the macro level, what are they doing with their dollars? What are they doing with their votes? What are they doing with their amplified voices and platforms? Mm -hmm. uh, there's both of those places and communities need to be addressed on their part um, in order for us to really have honest and open dialogue, not just with white people with themselves, but with all of us together. Mm -hmm. Right on. Thank you so much, all of you who wrote to us and ask questions and comments. And thank you to a couple comments for, for me and noting uh, the POC community in Eureka Valley. Um, the last mm -hmm. question we'll take from the audience, what, what can nonprofits do in this conversation? How can they play in this space? What role can they play? I think that in my experience, you know, the nonprofit sector is, should be commended oftentimes for having conversations that you won't find in the corporate sector. I'll say that much, but anyone that's worked in the nonprofit sector also knows that the majority of the power that's held in that sector is by cis white men, well-meaning cis white men, <laughs> but, but regardless. And so, you know, even uh, institutions that work for the, on the advocacy of equity, you know, I, I was, uh, I sat on the board of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club for eight years and, you know, all of our legislation and things that we were trying to pass was for, were, were for equity, for, um, you know, to, to bring POC and black voices to the center. But one thing that we struggled with as a organization still do, and, and you know, are, and I will say are, are actively trying to change is integrating that representation into our membership. <laughs> like it's like it's like we can't we can't move forward if if the people aren't there. We can't. This is it. it we then fall back into the same dynamic. I think that one of the things with the nonprofit, and I appreciate your your leadership and your experience with the Harvey Milk Democratic Club. But that is a democratic club, and and in right. in in terms of nonprofit organizations, nonprofit is such a broad. I mean. You know, all types of nonprofits, but I do think that 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 certainly one of the things that is important, uh, um, building on what Steve said, is that in terms of the leadership of nonprofits, mm -hmm. that how do we mobilize and how do we build pipelines that of of people of color that um, I think there are, that are there are plenty of people of color that are they're LGBT that are that are ready and prepared to to lead to to be executives of nonprofits and and sit on boards, et cetera. Um, but I think that sometimes too, the idea of certain nonprofits is that we are always the subject. We are always the target population to be served. And I think that that has, that has a little bit of an impact. And, and not to say that, that we are not, um, that, that there aren't realities in terms of folks of color that, that, that need the services and should access the services that some of the direct service nonprofits provide. But in terms of even advocacy organizations, that um, I think that there are some great nonprofit organizations that we can all, you know, the National Center for Lesbian Rights is by far one of my favorites. Uh, I think that I've worked, you know, out in equal workplace advocates and working with corporate entities on, on inclusion and diversity of LGBTQ people. So there are a lot of nonprofits. That's a whole other economy within our movement. Um, so some are doing, uh, I think, better than others, but I do think that, that there are a number of nonprofit organizations that are really beginning to look at uh, what equity means within the 
mm-hmm. organization itself? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you create, how do you support, and how do you tap into the talent pool of folks that are, that are able to um, not only to, to serve or be an employee, um, but also can lead those mm-hmm. organizations. We'll see a little bit more that. of that moving forward. Right. Yeah. I love that. You know, we only have a, a, a couple minutes left um, and in talking to all of you and all that you give and contribute to our community is just, uh, I, I don't have the words for it, but I could cry right now and being grateful for all that you do. It's, it sounds like our community is standing up, coming together. San Francisco Queer Nightlife, I mean, is a lifeline for many of us who are still in the city and looking forward to the day in which we can rejoice and come together and dance again and this time hopefully much more um maybe maybe you know a, an inclusive resurgence of queer people in the city so we'll look forward to that let's let's leave our audience with uh one or two things um maybe 30 seconds for each of you or a minute uh one or two things that we could all do to be less complicit in uh you know, racist or racial oppression. We'll start with Africa. The number one thing is remember that people make mistakes, call them out on the mistake and be, try to be, try to have the grace to help them with the mistake. If they, if they don't follow with the grace that you give them, then you can, then you do what you need to do, but let's come with some grace. Everybody makes mistakes. I want, it can't just be, you're white and you're bad. It's like, you're white, you're privileged, and that's the way it is, and that's, and that's all it is. So now, I need your help to keep helping all, all of us move together. Period. Thank you. Eric? Yeah, I, I think for queer POC in our community, we have to really understand our intersectionalities and accept that our, 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 our truths with conviction. I think together as people of color, by understanding that, we can then reach out to our white allies so then they can also hear and learn about our intersectionality. I don't think that talking about race on its own is going to solve or move the, 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 the barometer forward. I think we have to understand that race, sexism, gender, socioeconomic status, those are all aligned. And racism is not racism on its own, you know? And so understanding intersectionality as a way to heal, empower, and amplify marginalized voices and experiences within the queer experience is very, very important. Thank you. Steven? Yeah, I, 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 I can't do much than build on what they both just said is, you know, it's like, I guess the complete complicity on the part of uh, white folks, I, that would boil down to what Eric had said earlier about micro macro. Like, I mean, like, you know, I see so many posts on social media and so say like, I know it's bad, but I just had to get Chick-fil-A. I'm like, what? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, think about what you're enabling when you do just buying food, you know? Um, And then like amongst our community, I think, I, you know, th- there's so many demands that are made on us already. I would just say trust in the strength of your beauty and, and the strength of our community and don't play into the rules that were handed to us. The intersectionality is the key. The, this is how we have strength in numbers here. You know, like we don't have to be divided. 
we can be united. We have to recognize the beauty of not just ourselves, but the other people that are being oppressed. And I think that that's very, especially in the queer community, that's very important to remember because so often, I mean, members of our community are completely forgotten or taken out of the conversation, like in our trans community, you know, like, so we have to remember, especially black and POC uh, in the trans community. So it's just, this is, this is, that's what I would say is just, you know, recognize our beauty and our strength and our power to be united. And Andrew, you have the last, the last word, the last answer, keep it to a minute or less. Absolutely. Well, I think in order for us all to move forward, we have choices. And the choices do we move forward together. And that's really the only way to move forward is to do so together. But understanding and embracing our history, some of the greatest thinkers, the greatest activists, the greatest leaders on the ideas of what we now call intersectionality, the ideas of how do we move past homophobia, how do we move past racism, uh, sexism, have been LGBTQ people, have been queer leaders. I represent also the Baird Weston LGBT Coalition uh, for Civil Rights. We are the holders, we are the bearers of his legacy. This was, we just celebrated uh, a week ago, the, the March on Washington for jobs and freedom in 1963, August, 1963, August the 28th. It was Beard Rustin, who was the architect, who was the leader and the main organizer of that march where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Starting with Beard Rustin and understanding what his philosophies were in terms of how do you build coalition and bring us together and move past the ills of racism and sexism and homophobia. He was a proud, openly gay white man, uh, uh, gay black man. Audre Lorde, uh, Alice Walker, uh, Bell Hooks. There are, we, have, we are just absolutely, we have such a wealth of thinkers that, that are there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, but know our history and continue to stand on that as often the persons out front on these issues. And so I just ask people to also embrace that. We have choices right now and how we're going to move forward together, how we're going to look both ways before we cross the street and then hold hands together to get across safely. And as Africa said, there has to be grace and there has to be those moments. Um, but the train is pulling out of the station and hopefully we'll have a, a, a train where there's love and kindness and respect, dignity, and um, certainly an eye towards a future that is not about race. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you to our wonderful panelists, our community heroes, Stephen, Andrea, Eric, Africa. Thank you to San Francisco Pride, Commonwealth Club, Comcast, Gilead uh, for supporting this program and helping us put it together. Uh, and thank you all for joining us in this conversation and all those folks who reached out and sent us their questions and all of you tuned in, share this. It'll be available. You can check for a full listing of all Commonwealth Club problem, problems. We have a lot of problems. We're going to solve them, especially with this crew. Uh, but what I meant to say is all Commonwealth Club programs at Commonwealth Club 
org slash MMS for the Michelle Miao Show program. Next week, we'll have Nikki Solis, San Francisco public defender, who'll be with us here to talk about her time in serving uh, with Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, who uh, will be here next, or maybe, uh, well, I, we'll talk about politics next week. Anyway, <laughs> thank you all so much. We'll see you next time. <laughs>